Before we turn to Matthew 24, I want to start this sermon where Paul ended his in Athens. He said, The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because God has fixed a day. He has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. God is going to judge the whole world in righteousness by man. And he's given us proof of that by raising him from the dead. Christ Jesus, our Lord. And I want, you to, I want you to catch what Paul closed that sermon with because it's, a, it's, it's what our text is about today. But there's a day fixed and immovable that God has set in which he's going to judge the world. And he's appointed the judge, his son, Jesus Christ, descended from heaven, crucified, buried, and raised from the dead, ascended on high, and coming back on a day that God has fixed. It's set. The very last page of this book, matter of fact, almost the last sentence of this book, in red letters, by Jesus himself, he says, surely, I am coming soon. This is the way the Bible ends. He says, Behold, I am coming soon. And guess what he's bringing? He says, I'm bringing my recompense, my repayment. I'm going to pay. I'm going to pay everybody. I'm going to repay everyone, each one, for what he has done. Jesus has already repeated that in Matthew 16, previously. And that's what today's text is about. That Jesus is coming soon to judge the world. Are you ready for that? Turn to Matthew 24. Jesus is coming soon to judge the world in righteousness. And that truth should create a question, a natural question in our mind, and it is when. When's he coming? When, when is judgment day? 
Man, how, how much time, how much time do I have left until he shows up? That's the question that started this whole discussion in Matthew 24. Look at verse 3. Jesus is sitting there privately with his disciples on the Mount of Olives overlooking Jerusalem. This is why this discourse that we've been talking about is called the Olivet Discourse. It starts, this discourse starts right after Jesus pronounces these woes of judgment against the Pharisees and the religious leaders. And and he leaves the temple. Jesus leaves the temple and he laments over Jerusalem. And he tells his disciples, you see the temple? It's going to be destroyed. You see that in the first two verses. Not a stone is going to be left on top of one another. It's all going to be thrown down. And now, as they sit on the Mount of Olives overlooking Jerusalem, the disciples ask that natural question that provokes this great discourse in eschatology by Jesus himself. They ask this question in verse 3. When will these things be? When When will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And and notice they're asking about three things there. They're asking about the temple. When's that going to be destroyed? When are you coming? When's the end of the age? And notice they want to know what we want to know. When? When? When will these things be? What's going to be the sign? How how am I going to know? You see, they think all these things are going to happen at the same time. But we learn from Jesus in this Olivet Discourse that the destruction of Jerusalem and the end of the age are not the same thing. Matter of fact, we know now, especially 2,000 years later, the big gap. But yet Jesus does answer their question. He answers their question in this Olivet Discourse. And Dustin, in the previous three sermons from Matthew 24, he showed us that. He showed us that Jesus starts out giving lots of details about the lead up to and the destruction of Jerusalem. This is what they're asking for. But when it comes to answering that question about when he's coming, when is the end of the age, we learn that that's the wrong question. As as we're going to see here, it is not for us to know when Jesus is coming back. And and that's on purpose. That is clearly by God's design. And so one thing that this passage is not teaching us is when Jesus is coming back. It's actually, are you ready? Are you ready? That's the question. That's the right question to ask. Are you ready to stand before Jesus Christ today? If he came right now, today. 
Are you ready to give an account to God for everything you've ever done? Are you ready? Because Jesus says here, you must be ready. You've got, you got to be ready. Why? Because the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. Let's pray. And then read the text. Lord Jesus, you reign. You descended and you ascended. And you reign on high. You're seated right now at the right hand of God, waiting, waiting to put your enemies under your feet. But you have been so gracious to pour out your spirit on your church and to reveal these things to us and to not leave us as children of darkness, but children of light. You've awakened us to the truth. And you give us these gracious, gracious words of reminder and warning that you're coming back. Lord, I pray that you would produce the fear of you here today. I pray that you would produce joy for the saints that you've saved by your blood. Lord, I pray that you produce steadfastness and firmness and perseverance in your people. That we would persevere and serve you faithfully to the very end. Give us a longing for your return. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Matthew 24, verse 36. Jesus says, but concerning that day and hour... No one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. Therefore, Stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known, if he had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming. He's coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then? Who then? Who, who, who is the faithful and wise servant whom his master set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find doing so when he comes. 
Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master's delayed, and begins to be his fellow servants and eats and drinks with the drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he does not know, and will cut him to pieces and put him with the hypocrites in that place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. <clears throat> Let's first make clear what Jesus is talking about. Verse 36 says, but concerning that day and hour, what day and hour? The day and hour of his return. This is what he's talking about. Jesus is talking about the day when he will return from heaven back to earth. Remember the question in verse 3. What's going to be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? This is what they asked Jesus. And Jesus, throughout chapter 24, and especially in our text, he uses his favorite title for himself, the Son of Man, to talk about his return. Jesus is describing himself, he's identifying himself as this glorious eschatological figure from Daniel 7. Jesus is saying, that's me. I'm the son of man. I'm the one who ascends into heaven. I'm the one who stands before the ancient of days and receives all dominion and glory and power forever and ever. That's me. And guess what? I'm coming back. And he starts describing what that's going to look like in verse 27. He says, for as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far to the west, so will be the coming of who? The Son of Man. He says in verse 30, there will appear in the sign, uh, in heaven the sign of the Son of Man when all the tribes of the earth will mourn. They're going to see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he's going to send out his angels with this great loud trumpet call. And they're going to gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. And this same topic is what's going on in our passage. Look, verse 37. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Verse 39. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Verse 42, you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. The Son of Man is coming. Verse 44. He's talking about the day in which he's going to come. When he's going to come and judge the world. He's going to judge between the faithful and the wicked. And Jesus is going to give us a, a, a whole string of comparisons and parables about what it's going to be like when he comes. Today we're going to see he's going to compare it to the flood in Noah's day. He's going to talk about this great day of winnowing, separating, 
He's going to give us two parables about being prepared or unprepared, about being, being faithful or being negligent. And that's all going to set up for next week these three longer parables, each of them, every, each of them again, are, are showing what this cataclysmic last day division of humanity is going to look like. This final and forever separation between the faithful and the wicked, all ending up with either eternal life or eternal punishment. That's how, that's how this whole discourse ends. Listen, this is, this is eternal, terrifying, true stuff. And so what's the big question? When will these things be? And here's Jesus' answer. No one knows. Verse 36, no one knows. Concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. Man, think about that. The most important date in the universe. And nobody knows. No human being, mark this, no human being knows when Jesus is coming back. He says that three times here. No one knows. You do not know. An hour you do not expect. No angel in heaven or hell knows when Jesus is coming back. And you think, man, surely some angel in heaven knows. Peter says, angels long to look into these things. Remember in Matthew 8, when Jesus comes upon this demon-possessed man, and the demons see him, and they cry out to him, Oh, Son of God, what do you have to do with us? Are you here? Have you come early? Have you come to torment us before the time they, they know like us, there's time. There's a time coming. They just don't know when. Why? No one knows, he says. Not even Jesus. The man Christ Jesus himself doesn't even know when Jesus is coming back. But that's got to jar you a little bit. That's got to mess with your Christology. Unless you got your Christology right. What do you mean Jesus doesn't know when Jesus is coming back? There's no doubt. This has confused people. This has been the grounds for many heresies in church history. To this day, even. But listen, what we're seeing here is the beauty and the glory and the mystery of the incarnation. Jesus is God in the flesh. You hear this over and over again. 100% God, 100% man. One person, two natures, the eternal son of God, the man, Christ 
Jesus. Now, when I say, when you hear us say 100% God, 100% man, don't accidentally think 50% God, 50% man. Blend it. Don't think that. That's naturally where your mind's going to go. The man Christ Jesus is 100% man, really. Born of a virgin, a little baby in a manger, absolutely dependent on his mother to nurse him. He had to learn how to read. He grew up in stature and wisdom. He learned things. He lived and died by faith. He was led by the Spirit and he depended. Listen. He depended on revelation from his heavenly Father as a man. In John 5, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. Whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Now, don't let any of the fullness of his humanity diminish any of the fullness of his deity because the eternal Son of God is 100% God. Really. There is one God, three persons, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, co-existent, co-equal, co-eternal. This is what our own confession says. Jesus is God, the Son. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Very God of very God. So, according to His deity, omniscient. According to His humanity, finite. The Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He Himself is doing, but not this. Not, not in this moment. In His humanity, the man Christ Jesus does not know the date of His return. Only God knows. This is what Jesus said. Only the Father Again, this is the wonderful mystery of the incarnation. But you've got to ask the question, why? Why would this date, why would this end date be hidden from Christ? Because I want you to think about what does he know? What does Christ in his humanity know in this very moment right now? What does he know? Man, he, he knows the thoughts of the Pharisees while they're thinking he, he knows that Judas is about to betray him. He knows that Peter is about to deny him three times. He knows he's about to suffer and die on the cross and be raised from the dead on the third day. He knows he's the son of man. He, he knows he's going to be exalted at the right hand of God. And he knows he's coming back. And he knows how he's coming back. But he doesn't know when. Man, you've got to ask Why? Because God is a God of purpose. He does everything on purpose, for a purpose. What's the purpose? I got two thoughts. One, this is hidden from Christ 
to magnify, for us to magnify the truly unexpected nature of his return. I mean, you don't know, I don't know, angels don't know, Jesus doesn't know. It could happen, get this, it could happen any moment. It, when you least expect it, that's the point. And this is driving home that point. That's the point. You do not know. Verse 42. That's the point. That's the purpose. That's the reason for this stunning detail. But even Jesus doesn't know to magnify the unexpectedness of it all. So why would God do that? Why would he desire to keep the timing so secret? Why is he so interested in an, an element of surprise? To cause us, to cause his people. To surprise his enemies and to cause his people to live by faith and be about their father's business, just like Jesus. In, in this, in this, what Jesus isn't, isn't this how he lived his life? Should we not imitate him? He lived by faith. He was about his father's business. At 12 years old, he told his own mother that. I must be about my father's business. And you hear Jesus talk about this in this way all the time. He says one time, he says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. That's what I'm here to do. Mission, focus. I got a job to do. And Jesus has set his mind like his face like Flint, his mind to do that job. If you know anything about football, you might be familiar with the Patriot way. I'm not a Patriots fan, but that's, that refers to this guy named Coach Bill Belichick and the New England Patriots, the Patriot way. One of their mantras is this, do your job. They've won a bunch of Super Bowls. Do your job. There's a sense. There's a sense in which this is the very thing Jesus is teaching. Do your job. It is not for you to know that. Right before Jesus ascended back into heaven, he tells Peter, Peter, you're going to be martyred. You're going to be killed. And Peter looks at, he looks at John. He says, Lord, what about this man? Can you imagine? That would be an interesting question. What about this man? Jesus said to Peter, he said, look, if it's my will that he remains until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. You, you don't worry about that detail. In other words, do your job. It's not for you to know. And again, right before Jesus ascended back into heaven, his disciples asked him this same eschatological question. Lord, is it now time you're going to restore the kingdom? Jesus says, it is not for you to know. He said, it's not for you to know the times and seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will be my witnesses. In other words, do your job. It's not for you to know. Get, just get busy. That's the big push Jesus is going to give here in a minute. But first, 
He's going to give us a preview. He's going to give us a preview of Judgment Day by reminding us of history. He said that his return, his coming again, is going to be like the flood. The flood in Genesis 6. Look at verse 37. It says, For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Take note of that. That, that. that is real important biblical theology. The great flood of Noah's day is a preview of Judgment Day. Jesus is making that explicit. But first, don't miss this obvious point. Jesus treats the flood as real. That, that happened. That, that's a real historical event. That involved real people and that was real judgment. He does that because it's true. It's a real historical event. And Jesus is drawing similarities between the way it was then and the way it's going to be when he comes. By the way, God judged then, and by the way, God is going to judge when he comes. And this judgment day theology, or typology, really impacted Peter. Because he used it 30 years later when he wrote his second letter. He says, in those last days, scoffers are going to come. And what are they going to say? Where's it at? Where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. And he says they deliberately overlooked this fact. That the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And by that means the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. And then he says, by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment. So Peter learned that from Jesus. Noah's day is like judgment day. And so let's look at seven real quick. Seven similarities between the flood and Christ's return. First, just like in the days of Noah, life's going to be normal. Life's going to be normal. Verse 38, he says, For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. Business as usual. Everything's fine. Everything's normal. No big fear the world's going to end. No big cataclysmic events over here. No prophetic signs. No wars or rumors of wars. No famines. No earthquakes in this text right here. You know why? Because remember what Jesus said? All that stuff is just the beginning. All these things are but the beginning. That stuff's going to keep on going on. So there's really there's nothing to see here. Life's normal. Life's good. Just like now. Just like right now. The second comparison is this. That just like in the days of Noah... God will be ignored. I tried to find this quote. I remember it, but I don't know exactly what it was. But John Piper said, said once, the most stunning thing in the universe is people walk around every day and ignore God. Nobody's mind is on God. Or the things of God. The world is not serving God. The world is serving itself. 
just like in the days of Noah, just like it is right now. Third thing is this idea about judgment. Foreign. The idea of judgment is just foreign. Judgment day? What? Judgment day? Are you kidding for what? Who considers the power of your anger? Or your wrath according to the fear of you? Psalm 90. Who considers God's wrath? Think about it. Who considers? Maybe, maybe some of you do. I hope some of you do. But who else? Who considers God's wrath? Who would consider that God is, would be mad? Why is he mad? Why would he destroy the whole world? Judgment from God, that's totally out of mind, totally out of sight. Just like now, just like then. And the warnings, just like then, just like now, the warnings disregarded. Noah preached. He was a herald of righteousness, Peter said. For decades, he preached about the imminent righteous judgment of God that was coming. What did he preach? You ever thought about that? What did Noah preach? God's coming. He's coming in judgment. Get ready. It's going to rain. It's going to rain. What do you mean it's going to rain? It ain't never. What's rain? It's never rained. All things are continuing as they were before from the beginning. Noah's like, I'm telling you, it's going to rain. Get in the ark. How many got in the ark? None of them. None of them. Just Noah and his family. Gospel warnings mocked and disregarded just like now. Everything continued as normal until verse 38. Get that. Like everything's normal until Noah got in the ark. And then suddenly... Suddenly, God's wrath was unleashed and it was too late. In the same way, Christ's return is going to be shocking. It's going to be shocking. Look at verse 39. This is what he's telling you. He said, they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be. The coming of the Son of Man. They were unaware until the flood came. Until it was too late. They, they were unaware until the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of heaven were opened. Imagine that cataclysmic moment from when everything's normal to boom. They were unaware. Until, as Jesus says in verse 27, they were unaware until the lightning started flashing from the east to the west. You imagine that first raindrop? Falls on the head of the ones that's been ignoring the warnings from Noah. 
You imagine that first lightning bolt, that thunderstorm. What? The door of the ark was shut. It's too late. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. This is what he's saying. So, so it will be. Look, it's going to be shocking. And it's going to be too late. And it's going to be unavoidable. Unavoidable. Universal. Look at verse 39. Look who gets swept away. The flood came and swept them all away. The flood covered the whole earth. Guess what? God's judgment is going to cover the whole earth. The flood made an end to all flesh. God is going to make an end to all who are unfaithful to Him. You were either in the ark or under the ark. That's it. It came. It affected everybody. It wasn't local. It wasn't secret. Jesus said a little earlier here in Matthew 24, He said, it's not going to happen out in the wilderness. It's not going to be hidden in some inner room. It's going to be as far as the east is from the west. Everybody is going to be affected simultaneously and forever affected by this moment. Look, if you're out in the field, one's going to be taken and one's going to be left. If you're at the mill, one's going to be taken and one's left. Nobody's going to be able to escape it. Nobody's going to be able to avoid it. It's coming. The only hope is to prepare beforehand. In other words, get in the ark. The last comparison here is just like in the days of Noah, there's going to be this winnowing. It's a a Bible term. It's winnowing, this division. There's going to be this great and eternal division. Like in this one single moment, one single moment, there's going to be an everlasting divide between those that are in Christ and those that are not. Those that were in the ark were saved and those that were not in the ark were what? All swept away. Swept away. Look at verse 40. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken. One left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken. One left. Now I'm sorry to be the one to wreck your eschatology. Or to spoil your favorite movie. But let me tell you something. You really want to be left behind when Jesus comes. You do not want to be taken. Let me repeat that. You want to be left behind when Jesus comes. One will be taken and one will be left. You do not want to be the one taken. Remember, the meek shall inherit the earth. Those that were in the ark, guess what? They stepped out into a new creation while everybody else was swept away, taken. Those who build their house on the rock are going to remain. Those who build their house on the sand are going to be swept away. This is what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. This is what he says all through the Gospel of Matthew. He's talking about this great day when the wicked are going to be taken away. When he comes, Matthew 3. With his winnowing fork in his hand, he's going to do what? He's going to clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into his barn. 
The chaff he's going to burn in unquenchable fire. He's going to tell those workers of lawlessness who thought they knew him. He's going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. He's going to tell his angels, go and gather the weeds first. Bind them in bundles to be burned and then gather the wheat into my barn. He says, gather out, gather out of my kingdom, all causes of sin and all lawbreakers. He says, throw them, get rid of them, throw them into the fire. The one with the wedding garment, remember him? The one that got in without a wedding garment, what happened to him? Bound hand and foot and cast out. Take him out. And right here, verse 51, that the wicked servant is cut to pieces and put away with the hypocrites. And the foolish virgins coming up. What happened? They're shut out. And the worthless servant in chapter 25, he's cast out. And on the very last day, this last day, the sheep will be separated from the goats. And to the goats, he's going to say, depart. Take them away. You get the point? One will be taken. And one left. You don't want to be the one taken. Here's your key takeaway from this parallel between the flood and Christ's return. It's this. Conditions are perfect for Jesus to come back. We should get that. Nothing has to change. Nothing has to happen in order for Christ to come again at any moment. Wickedness and worldliness, just like in the flood, widespread disregard for God. Those are perfect conditions for this sudden, unexpected return of Jesus. Things do not have to improve. Things do not have to get worse. You don't have to look for signs in the sky. You don't have to keep track of the news in the Middle East. But you better be ready. You better be ready. This is the point. Jesus makes the application for us. Therefore, he says it twice. Two therefore statements. Verse 42. Therefore, stay awake. Why, Jesus? Because you don't know what day the Lord's coming. Verse 44. Therefore, you must also be ready. Why, Jesus? Because you don't know when I'm coming. So get the connection here. Since you don't know when Christ is going to come back, you have to stay ready. I want you to see that important connection between the not knowing and the exhortation to stay ready. You have no idea when the Lord is coming, therefore stay away. And think about something. He doesn't say, you need to wake up at such and such a time. Now he says, stay awake. He says, you, ha- you have no idea what hour the Son of Man is coming. Therefore, you must be ready. He doesn't say, get ready when you see this sign or that sign. He doesn't say, don't worry about it yet. Wait, wait till this sign comes. Don't worry about it yet. Wait till this hour comes. He doesn't say that. He says, stay awake. Be ready. 
You've got to stay ready. You've got to stay ready because you don't know when he's coming. That's the point of this little miniature parable he has in verse 43. He says, know this. That if the master of the house had known, if he had known in what part of the night the thief was going to come, he would have stayed awake and his house wouldn't have been broken into. Now think about something. If I told you for certain that a thief was going to break into your house next Thursday night at 2.52 a.m., what would you do? I know what some of y'all would do. And I pity the thief at 2.53 a.m. You'd get a good night's sleep on Wednesday. Maybe a good nap on Thursday. But come 2 in the morning, you're wearing camo and face paint, putting fresh batteries into the laser sight, wearing your night vision goggles. You ready? Right? Man, I got an amen out of some of the secret service. Thank you. <laughs> they ready think about it man there's no way that guy's taking you by surprise you know when he's coming Jesus says you gotta be ready and stay ready like that like that just one problem you don't know when he's coming you don't know when he's coming but you gotta be ready like that so think about this illustration. If I told you the same thing, I told you for certain there's a thief coming to break in your house sometime in the month of October. Now what you going to do? Can't take a nap. A lot of sleepless nights. Got to be on high alert. High alert for 30 days. How much more for the judgment? Like that's the point. Don't be caught napping on judgment day. Don't nap on eternal things. Hear me for the sake of your soul. Don't go to sleep. Or if you're asleep, wake up. Now what if in that same scenario, I told you that, and yet you acted like business as usual on Thursday. You, you got your door unlocked. You get a good night's sleep. You never take a second look out of the window. What does that tell me? It tells me you don't believe anything I said. You don't believe he's coming. You got to believe or you won't be ready. This is the problem and this is the exhortation. This is what Jesus is getting at. He's not telling you you got to sit outside and look, wait for the sky to rip open. He's saying you got to believe I'm coming back at any moment. Don't be looking at the sky. Get to work. I'm coming back when you don't know it. Do you, do you believe the words of Christ? Do you believe he's coming soon? Do you believe that God is going to judge the world in righteousness? Do you believe that? This is the very first aspect of being ready, staying ready, is faith. Do you believe the gospel? Paul says on that day, capital D, 
When according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. And Jesus says, look, when the Holy Spirit comes, he's going to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. Are you convinced of that? Has the Holy Spirit convinced you that you're a sinner? Has he convinced you that God is holy and just and righteous? And are you convinced that he is going to judge the secrets of men by Christ Jesus? When? It doesn't matter. It only matters that you come to Christ. It only matters that you get in the ark. You got to get in the ark. Remember, in the ark is where salvation is. In Christ is where salvation is. There is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. That's what matters. That's what matters. Be like the Thessalonians who turned to God to wait for his son. To wait for his son from heaven. The one whom he raised from the dead. The one who delivers us from that wrath that's coming. That's what you got to do. He's coming soon. He's going to sweep away the wicked. But guess what? He is coming also to save those that are eagerly waiting for him. Is that you? Are you waiting? Are you waiting for him? Are you believing? How do you know? How do you know that's you? What does that even look like? And Jesus answers that in this last parable right here in verse 45. He asks the question that you're asking. Like, what does that look like? And then he answers it. He says, who then is the faithful and wise servant? He's going to explain by parable what it looks like to stay ready. And this is the second aspect. Not just faith, but faithfulness. Faithfulness. To the end. To the end. So, think about how all this works. If you absolutely believe Christ is coming again and that you believe that he's going to reward the faithful and he's going to punish the wicked but you don't know exactly when he's going to come what should you do serve the Lord until he comes serve the Lord until he comes and this is what he's exhorting us to this faithfulness to the end in this very very simple parable here just look at this parable it's it's real simple it's got two players the master and the servant But the master represents Jesus who goes away and leaves his servant in charge. And the servant is the one who knows the will of the master and called to do so. Called to do the will of Christ. I get that all from the parable. Verse 45, the master has set the servant over the household. And then you can see in verse 46 and 50 that the master has left because he's coming back. In verse 48, he apparently stays a little longer than the servant thought he was going to stay. He's gone too long. Kind of like Moses, gone too long. Kind of like Samuel, he's just gone too long. Saul couldn't wait. And he says to himself, my master's delayed. 
And in verse 45, you see that the servant knows what he's supposed to do. He knows the will of his master. He's supposed to take care of the other servants, the fellow servants. He's supposed to give them their food at the proper time. Now, the only question is, when is the master coming back? And how is the master going to respond to what he finds when he gets back? Now, warning, these parables apply to all of humanity, to different levels, different degrees. And don't be shocked by that statement. I want to make sure you understand what I mean. Is this parable just for the apostles? Is it just for professing Christians? That's what Peter asked. Luke, Luke has a parallel account to this. And, and, and Peter asked, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And Jesus says, who then is the faithful and wise man? He gets into the parable. And Mark says, quotes Jesus as saying, what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. How does this apply to all? First of all, Jesus Christ is Lord. You are his servant. Period. That's the tweet. That's what I wrote. That's it. Jesus is the master of everything. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the creator and he owns you. Every one of you. He is the potter. You are the clay. All things were created through him and for him. And to him, every knee will bow. And to him, everyone will give an account. We're going to all have to stand before him on judgment day. So the return of Christ is going to eternally affect the aware and the unaware. The ones that are prepared and the ones that are not prepared. It's going to affect the faithful and the unfaithful. So it, it applies. This passage applies to everybody who's ever lived. But listen, it applies even more to the one who knows the will of God. If you're here and you profess to be a Christian, you should sit up and pay more attention right now because in the infamous words of Paul Washer, I'm talking to you. Jesus is talking to you. This second parable is addressing especially the servants who know the will of the The one who has been given instructions on how to behave in the household of God. The one who's been given instructions to love one another and take care of their fellow servants. You know that. And so judgment is going to be even more severe than the, to the one that disregards that. The, the, the parallel account in Luke says this explicitly. The same the same passage in Luke says that the servant who knew his master's will but didn't get ready or, and who didn't act according to his will is going to receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know but did what deserved a beating, he's going to receive a light beating. Like, note something there. 
That even the one who never heard of Christ is going to be punished, but woe to the one who says he knows Christ and disregards his word. That's what's going on here. And don't think that I'm not preaching to myself or Dustin or Ryan because I'm telling you that judgment is going to be most severe for the shepherds who neglect the chief shepherd's sheep. This parable talks about the servant whom the master has set over his household. The one who the master appointed to give them their food at the proper time. Remember what Peter was asked by Jesus three times. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Then feed my sheep. That's his job. Do your job. This is your job. Feed my sheep. 30 years later, Peter is going to exhort his fellow elders to shepherd the flock. Shepherd the flock. Paul is going to say, take care of the flock that God obtained by his own blood. Be careful of teaching. James says, not many of you should be teachers, my brother, for you know that those who teach are going to be judged with a greater strictness. And the writer of Hebrews says, pastors, Pastors have got to keep watch over the souls as one who's going to have to give an account to the chief shepherd. And so what is Jesus doing here? He is exhorting every servant, every one of his servants, even to different levels, to serve him faithfully now. Paul says the body of Christ is made up of many members, many, many parts, yet one body. Not everybody's an eye, not everybody's a hand. We each have our own part to play. We have our own job to do, each according to his own work. That's how Mark says it. That this, the master that leaves assigns each one of his servants, each his own work. That's what the parable of the talents is about. And just like next week, he's assigning out different Bars of gold to different, according to their abilities. Everybody's getting different jobs. Everybody's getting different functions. And he's saying, do the work. In other words, do your job. Serve Christ faithfully now. Right now. Where you are with what you're doing. What he's assigned to you right now. Remember Peter asked, what about John? He said, you don't worry about John. Don't worry about what somebody else is doing. What are you supposed to be doing? What are you waiting for? Some of you, really. What are you waiting for? Serve Christ now. One day I want to be a pastor. One day I want to go to the mission field. One day I'm going to do this or, or that. A little more for Jesus Christ. One of these days I'm going to do this. Like, look, listen. One day may not ever come. Christ may come today. What is he going to find you doing? What are you waiting for? Yeah, you can do those things then. What are you doing now? Serve Christ faithfully now. And here's even more important. Don't ever stop. Don't stop. Serve him to the end. If you hadn't caught this from the text yet, I want to make sure you understand but this parable shows that it is not good enough to start out faithfully serving Christ. 
You got to serve him faithfully until you die or he comes back. That's what this is teaching. Notice the scenario is focused on what the servant, singular, is going to do if his master's return is delayed. Notice the question, who then? Who then is the faithful and wise servant? And the answer is in 46. Blessed is that servant whom his master finds doing so when he comes. Not the one who started out well, but the one who is found doing his master's will when he gets back. That's the one who's blessed. That's the one who's rewarded. But notice the but in verse 48. But if that, and I'm inserting this here, if that same servant says to himself, my master's delayed. And he begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards. That same servant, look at what he does. He talks himself into unbelief. The one that he set over his house, the one that might have started out well, serving the Lord faithfully, he didn't know when he was coming back and it just started taking too long. He just couldn't keep going. He got tired. He starts neglecting his duties. He says, my master's not coming. He's not coming for a while. Just relax. Enjoy yourself. Chill out a little while. He starts neglecting his duties. He starts abusing his fellow servants. He starts serving himself instead of his master. Why? Because he starts believing a lie. He's, the fear of the Lord starts to wear off a little bit. This urgency to, to serve his master starts to wear off a little bit. His longing to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. That longing starts to wear off a little bit. That fire and that light that was inside starts to grow dim. He starts to become sleepy and sluggish towards the work he's been assigned or bored with. He wants something better. And Jesus says, stay awake. Don't worry about when I'm coming back. Keep your hand to the plow. Keep your hand to the plow. This is hard. But he says, his motivation, behold, I am coming soon. I'm bringing my recompense with you. I'm going to pay you back. And that can be an awesome thing or a terrifying thing. He's going to reward your faithful perseverance, but he is going to punish to the uttermost your sluggish, disobedient neglect. Look at this verse 46. Look at this unimaginable reward that the faithful servant's going to get, the one who's blessed. Blessed is that servant whom his master finds doing so when he comes. Guess what he's going to do? He says, I'm going to set him over all my possessions. This is the same concept of eternal reward that we're going to see next time in the parable of the tenants. You're going to hear that well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little for a little while. I'm going to set you over much. You, do you know what that means? Exactly. Do you know what that means? I don't know. But it's good. I don't know. Man, I've thought about this text for years, I've thought about the parable of talents. 
Long in the here. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a little. I'm going to set you over a lot. Oh man, what does that mean? I don't know, but if you think it's a privilege to serve Jesus Christ in this fallen world, you ain't seen nothing yet. Can you imagine what it's going to be like to serve Him forever in a new creation? And don't miss this little detail. Don't miss this. Your commendation, well done, and your reward is going to come from Jesus Himself. I'm going to say to them, well done. Can you imagine that? Jesus, the master, is going to look a sinner like me in the eye. A sinner. One who wastes his life, half his life on sin. He's going to look a sinner in the eye. The one who is saved sheerly by grace. The one is kept by the power of God through faith, not any of his own doing. He's going to look that man in the eye and he's going to be, he's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. You who are blessed by my father, come inherit the kingdom that my father prepared for you before the foundation of the world. That's a little motivation. Jesus motivates his church. He says, be faithful unto death. And I will give you the crown of life. I don't know how long that's going to take for him to look you in the eye. Every one of you that's faithful to the end. I don't know how long it's going to take. It doesn't matter because we've got plenty of time. He says, be faithful just a little while, just unto death. Just be faithful a little while. And I will give you the crown of life. Peter, who, who got it, he really got it. Finally, 30 years later, he says, when the chief shepherd appears, pastor, you're going to receive an unfailing crown of glory. I don't know if I can keep going, Lord. Yeah, yeah. When he appears, it says when he appears, every faithful servant is going to receive an unimaginable reward. But guess what? The one that's unfaithful, the one that doesn't persevere to the end, is going to get an unimaginable punishment. And look, this is how Jesus ends this text. This is not how I'm ending it. This is how he ends it. This is how he ends the discourse in the judgment parable. Coming up. He says, look, the master of the wicked servant is going to come on a day when he doesn't expect him. Element of surprise. At an hour he doesn't know and he is going to cut him down. He's going to cut him to pieces and take him away. Put him away with the hypocrites in that place. And Jesus says this over and over and over in the Gospel of Matthew. In that place where there will be weeping and no wiping. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. Who can imagine that? Who can imagine that? I got time for one. Actually, I passed time. 
time for just one of these takeaways. And I want to just speak to the one who doesn't know Christ. This is what you need to do. I was driving down the interstate this week, pulled up behind an 18-wheeler, had real dirty back of the trailer, and somebody had written their finger, really big words. This message perfectly summarized the call in this passage. It said this, the end is near. Follow Jesus today. I'm like, I'm going to use that. If you're here today and you are not following Jesus, get this, you are in imminent danger of being swept away in judgment. There is an hour coming, and look, it tells you clearly here, it's when you least expect it. Jesus is going to rip the sky open, and it's going to be too late. I know you can't imagine such a cataclysmic event, but I've seen several in my lifetime where the whole world stopped. Beautiful, sunshiny day. Bam! 21 years ago, 9-11. Fear of the Lord came on me. And many people didn't last though because it, it wasn't the real thing. Just a little preview of the real thing. When you least expect He's coming. The end is near. Follow Jesus today. Listen to me. You need to repent. You need to repent. You need to confess to God that you've sinned against Him. You need to believe this judgment day and believe the one that's coming in judgment will save you. He will save you. Don't go back to sleep. Man, I know, look, it, I, I stand, we stand up here and preach every week. And there's, there's many in this room that I know are lost. And I know sometimes you get stirred a little bit. And you go right back to business as usual. Don't do that today. Don't do that today. Take heed. The end is near. Follow Jesus today. Let's pray. Lord God, I pray that you would grant repentance today. I pray you would be kind and produce the fear of the Lord. Grant that beginning of wisdom. God, I pray you'd help your church to believe these things so that we do our job and serve you faithfully till you come and then enjoy this glorious reward that we don't even receive, we don't even deserve. Lord, please bless the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen.